Tell us a little bit about what you saw and, and, and being able to relay that message to Cora when you watched Kimbrell pitch and, and kind of help out so he wasn't uh, tipping his pitches. So tipping pitches, we hear about it all the time. People at home understand what tipping pitches is all about. It's amazing. Man. And that's remarkable. Alex, do you think you would be good at writing an advice column? Is there a, I mean, the answer is no, kind of regardless. But I'm curious, is there like a, a specific angle the column would have? Like, I'm, am I advising baseball fans? I mean, you know, we do our, our own form of, of an yeah. advice column with our voicemail line. Although I, you know, whether that actually, whether we're really rendering any worthy advice is, you know, a conversation for another day. It's not, we're not the judge and jury on that. We're just the, <laughs> we're just the people giving the advice. No, I guess, I guess it would be baseball specific. The reason I ask is because I'm basically calling in to you right now to ask you a question. Okay. So the Mets are in quite a slide. They won last night, but that makes them just a measly 3-14 and 14 in their last 17 games. Uh, it's been very frustrating to watch unfold. Their owner is like weirdly tweeting through it. The, the front office was kind of in disarray all year. And my question for the Ask Alex advice column mm-hmm. is, am I a sheep if I wanted to buy season tickets for the Mets? Like, just Let's just say, hypothetically speaking, if I were to move back to New York... And I was like, oh, I'm so excited to be back in New York. Finally got a little money, have an adult job. Maybe I'll buy a 20 or 40 game season ticket package. Does that make me a sheep? And this is completely hypothetical. It has no bearing on, say, a conversation we had in the last week or so. No. Nothing like that. Okay. I'll this pass. I just thought of this out of thin air before mm-hmm. the show started. I mean, I'll start off with no ethical consumption, et cetera, et cetera. Right? I mean, we're, you right. know. You critique capitalism and yet you participate in it, right? Like <laughs> that whole thing. Um, I suppose the the biggest question, and I'll I'll maybe turn this back on you because I think that more than anything else, it's a it's a it's a conversation you need to have with yourself. Um, That's like ninety nine percent of our advice to people, by the way. Right? Exactly. Is just you, make the decision for just yourself. Reflect on it. Yeah. Reflect. <laughs> I. We're I encouraging think, people to be more introspective. That's basically the entire <laughs> existence of this podcast. Do you think your life would be improved by watching in person 20 games of the New York Metropolitans a year? That's a tricky question. Mm-hmm. Because my life is not improved by watching the Mets. But right. the real question here, if we're going to if we're going to hone even more specifically in is would my life be improved by watching them at the ballpark versus watching them at home? Because right. at least at the ballpark, you get the experience, you're sitting around fans, you get to have fun conversations, you get to wear Unionize the Miners merchandise, maybe a No Billionaires in Baseball hat, for example, tiny.cc backslash nationalized tipping pitches merch store. But at home, you're just angry and alone or angry right. with one other person or angry on FaceTime with your mom who says, I don't know why you keep watching this team. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I think probably. I think it would be improved. I'll tell you what, my finances wouldn't be improved by doing that. <laughs> that's that's fair. Yeah, you are um you're underwriting like Steve Cohen's uh 
purchase of like a premium Twitter subscription at this point, you know? You could, I mean, you could just tip him on Twitter. It's probably easier, Bobby, if you wanted to give him that money. Some Mets fans are almost there. I know. Um, I'm going to talk about that a little later. We're also going to talk about tanking in 2021, where it stands, what its future is, why we have this version of it and this discourse about it. We're going to answer some listener voicemails. We'll do three up, three down as well. Before we do all of that, I am Bobby Wagner. I'm Alex Baisley. And you are listening to Tipping Pitches. Okay, Alex, before we um, get into the nitty-gritty on tanking, the tanking discourse, we're going to do a sports radio segment about tanking and how it's not manly enough. Uh, I would like to talk to you about a story that I saw pop up on MLB.com. It is about Stephen Ridings, who is the recent call-up by the New York Yankees, pumping 100 out of the bullpen. Uh, He's already back down in the minors, um, but we suspect that we will see him in the major leagues again. There was a profile written of him about how he was substitute teaching in Florida in the offseason and during last year to supplement his income. Uh, And it's, I'd say the next in a long line of stories that we've seen over the last 10 years, five years, where baseball media finds it cute and quirky that a person was working a second job to make ends meet while also being employed by a multi-billion dollar baseball franchise in a antitrust exempt industry. Um, This article specifically, I mean, I agree with the premise that it is fascinating that this guy was substitute teaching while also just being able to throw 100 and being a professional baseball player. But there is a lack of interest in digging deeper and examining why that person had to go do that that I think is as frustrating as it's ever been and is a little bit confounding that it's not getting better. Now, obviously, this story comes from MLB.com. No MLB.com writer is going to just come out and say and bash an MLB club and say unionize these minor leagues. However, it's just like not the time for these stories anymore. It never really was the time, but it's especially not the time now. Right. So we're... Referring to Stephen Writings, right? The uh, the the relief pitcher uh, that made his debut for the for the Yankees recently, who's pumping like a hundred, right? Like a a genuine uh, piece for their bullpen. Who, when the COVID nineteen pandemic hit and the minor league season was canceled in twenty twenty, he had to take a job. Uh, this is while he was with the Royals. Uh, he took a job as a part-time teacher, a quote proctor, a substitute teacher, which shouts out to all my substitute teachers out there. Yeah, some of them were not great. Well, you know what? <laughs> They're trying. They're doing their best. <laughs> some of them are are throwing a hundred on the side, you know. So let's cut them some slack a little bit. I get the the interest around some of these stories and. For what it's worth, this um, this particular article does not kind of beat on the drum of look at how inspiring this is necessarily. Uh, I think that you know, as as writers about baseball, you are always looking for kind of a unique angle and a sort of offbeat story. And so, of course, a, 
a story about a minor leaguer who was a substitute teacher on the side and yeah. then made his major league debut just a couple years later is an interesting one. So yeah. it's the not, human it's interest a, element writes itself. Like I, I'm not as mad at this as I was a couple years ago is when they were writing about Randy Dobnik and Uber. That was right. that was not great. Exactly. But they are all a part of the same kind of uh, cinematic universe, so to speak, right? Of baseball <laughs> players, um, minor league baseball players. Do you think Disney's going to buy that one for $10 billion? <laughs> uh, Limited series about minor leaguers living in cars together? Jesus. Well, I mean, yeah, they've already got the relationship with Major League Baseball, right? They already bought their whole video technology platform from them, right? So, yeah, that didn't work. So might as well buy uh, stories about minor leaguers that don't work either. Tell you what they haven't done is they haven't continued to update the MLB TV app. The the Disney Plus app is the only thing getting attention from Disney these days. Anybody would like would anybody like to see a box score right across the middle of the game? Going once, going twice. <laughs> this is one of your beats. I love it. And I don't really get to experience it because I either watch through YouTube TV or um through other means. Yeah. Which I'll leave it at that. You have YouTube TV? My mo- my mother does. Oh, okay. I was gonna so, say, you know. Oh no, I'm not. <laughs> out here, I'm not, I'm not that bougie out here. <laughs> we could put it on the tipping pitches budget, by the way. That's a good idea. That is a work related expense, literally. Hmm. We'll, off, we'll offline about this anyway. We've gotten so far afield. I, I agree with you though that stories like these, well intentioned or not, um, oftentimes inadvertently end up providing cover for the more pernicious conditions that minor leaguers have to live in, right? There's not a lot of focus necessarily on why it was that a player in a multi-billion dollar industry was forced to find a second job when, you know, the, uh, the season was canceled. And I would just, I would ask more baseball writers to interrogate that a little bit more um, because it's a story that's equally worth worth telling and has far more long-term implications on the health of a game than a, a simple little human interest story like this. Right. And we, um, I, like, I don't think that it's reasonable to expect that every MLB.com writer or every beat writer, or whatever is going to interrogate it with the same point of view that we talk about it with on this show every week. But you know, there's a lot of conversation about objectivity in journalism. Here's an objective fact. These minor leaguers are making, you know, less than $15,000 a year. I don't think it's beyond the pale to include figures like that for how much Stephen Ridings was making in order to motivate him to go get a substitute teacher job. Like, why do people get jobs to make money? Well, how much money was he making at his minor league gig? That's a question that I have after completing this article. And that's a question that I'm sure... Not every reader is thinking to listen, but is pertinent to this story. Like, he didn't just do it. He didn't say he went and got the job because he thought it would be fun. In fact, his, qu- his quotes in here are not like, I was having a great time. His quotes are like, well, I felt like I needed to go do it. You know, like his quotes are kind of like lukewarm about the whole experience. And so, I don't know. I just think, I think there is a, a, still a pretty big 
gap between I know that minor leaguers are not making very good money and I know that minor leaguers are only making like $8,000 a year. Like I, I, I think that people don't realize it's that dramatic. Even people who are in the know about the problems facing the minor leaguers and their pay and their housing and everything. Um, and so I think that like if you're a writer covering about it, it's sort of incumbent on you. If you're a writer covering these stories, it's sort of incumbent on you to close that gap. That's the, that's the point of writing about minor league baseball, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think that these stories like these are heartwarming, can be spun as heartwarming because he made it to the major leagues, right? He persevered. And ultimately, it does a disservice to the dozens, the hundreds of minor leaguers who maybe had to take a second job in the COVID pandemic when the, when the season was canceled. and did not end up making it to the major leagues or, you know, thought that baseball was maybe not a viable path forward for them, right? The hundreds of minor leaguers who were out of a job when 40 teams were cut, you know? And this story is so close to that too, because as you mentioned, he was on the Royals when this story happened. He's currently on the Yankees. The Royals cut him Mm -hmm. during the pandemic. They cut him while he was working this second job as a substitute teacher. And it just so happened that he was training in a gym in Florida that was owned by the strength coach for the Yankees. And so he had access to this guy. And then they sent a Yankee scout down and they were like, this guy throws 100. Let's give him a shot. And they were able to develop him into the player that eventually got called up this year. But he's like a, you know, a stone's throw away from not making it. He's a stone's throw away from being the person that doesn't get this article written about him. And I think that there is such a richer, albeit, darker story there that we're just not hearing do you think you ever had a teacher who could throw like 90 no all my teachers were like five eight <laughs> there's just a just a <laughs> biomechanical <laughs> no there <laughs> yeah yeah i definitely had some in high school you know that you would have like a the teacher who was also the track and field coach or whatever. So definitely some athletic teachers out there, probably yeah. some, some who could steal like 15, 20 bases if they yeah. were able, able to get on base. Well, you could steal 15 bases off John Lester. So it depends these days. They don't let anybody run, but <laughs> yeah, I don't think, I don't think any of my teachers were pumping 90. However, if any of my former teachers listen to this show and want to prove me wrong, I'm more than willing to hop on a FaceTime or a zoom. <laughs> All right, can we talk about tanking? Yes. I guess. Yeah. I don't know. I, we kind of have to. So we're at the... We're in the final quarter of the season at this point, Alex. And the real bottom of the barrel has started to emerge in terms of what teams are at the race to the bottom to have the worst record. Although it's been pretty apparent the whole year. The Orioles, the Pirates, um, the Rangers, the Diamondbacks... These teams are really, you know, we're getting into like the negative hundreds and run differential. They're 20, 30, 40 games under 500. Um, And so I wanted to talk to you about tanking and where it currently stands in the discourse, where fans like us, what fans like us currently feel about it. Because I'm wondering how we're still having the same conversations about the efficacy of tanking in 2021. Like I thought, I kind of thought that we settled that. Mm Mm-hmm. A couple years ago. Meaning, I think that there is this lingering fallacy. 
that you have to be the worst team by several standard deviations in order to rebuild. And I'm not entirely sure where that came from. I suspect that it came from the Astros because when you talk to fans of these teams who support this drastic of a tank, they're like, well, it worked out for the Astros or well, it worked out for the Cubs. And I just think that there is sort of a lack of intellectual interrogation going on about how those rebuilds happened and what made those teams good again, finally, that I'd like to discuss with you. The Astros were definitely the worst team in baseball for three or four years. They were this bad. They were putting Orioles 19-game losing streak level products on the field for an entire season. And it was really tough to watch. And then they got really good, obviously, and they're still really good. But the other half of that equation was the fact that not all of those top picks that they got from tanking, because tanking gets you the top pick. It doesn't get you a better farm system. It just gets you the top pick. The top pick doesn't always turn into a good prospect. The top pick in the Astros case only turned into a good prospect once, and that was Carlos Correa. They failed to convert on the other two top picks that they had. So I'm wondering why you think that this tanking legacy of the Astros and the Cubs continues to give fans cover for defending their teams being this bad. I think in part the reason that this myth continues to be perpetuated around the sport is not only that it's parroted by uh by you know front office executives or even national beat writers it's in part because it's the way the the sport has actually been set up right in rewarding tanking so to speak and making it difficult to actually kind of thread the needle and stay good for an extended period of time or do one of these like kind of resets you know um teams are capped on how much they can spend on draft picks on international signings draft picks are uh attached to outgoing free agents right so this sort of thing is highly incentivized for teams to do the problem is that it's the guarantees of reaping the rewards of tanking are far less of a sure thing in baseball than they are in say basketball because or football or or football right because when you tank you oftentimes are able to see those returns relatively quickly right there's not a four or five year uh window in there where you have to wait for your prospects to mature and be ready for the major league level right and there's a whole host of things that can go wrong in that window the orioles have a fine farm system although they don't have a lot of pitching and i mean i know that there's kind of this thinking that wow when the orioles do come back like they're going to be ready but that makes the assumption that a lot of their top guys are going to actually make it in the majors, that they're going to be able to conjure up some actual pitching prospects, right? That their development pipeline is actually strong enough to get these guys to 
reach their potential, which isn't always the case, right? And the people love to point to the Astros. People love to point to the Cubs as, you know, the success stories. This is what can happen when you do tank. But there's a lot less discussion about the teams that tank and things kind of I, things kind of don't work out. The Pirates have been tanking for since a while they traded now. Andrew McCutcheon. It's been a few years. And more than anything else, it's been this perpetual cycle that they keep pushing, right? Where they continue to trade off their young players. And it begs the question of like, okay, where does it end? Like, where do you deem yourself finally ready to make that big push? You know what I mean? Yeah. I think that my biggest gripe is not that teams, well, existentially, my biggest gripe is that teams are not trying to compete year in and year out. I don't think that it's unreasonable to assume that some teams should deem their window to not be the next one or two years. You know what I mean? Like, Nobody thinks that the Orioles are going to win the World Series this year. I don't think that the Orioles could have won the World Series this year, even if they spent $500 million in the offseason. I don't think that they would have won the World Series this year. Right. And it wouldn't have helped if they had, you know, pushed all their chips in at the deadline, right? And traded the top prospects for rentals. Like, that's not a a viable strategy. That's not what I think. My biggest gripe is that they are this bad. Like, how are you asking your fan base for three straight years to watch a team that is routinely losing double-digit games consecutively. How is that for, uh, for something that's not guaranteed in the future? You know, I understand that the Orioles' farm system was the worst in baseball, but you don't need the number one overall pick to change a farm system. If all they had was Adley, if all they had was Adley, which was their number one overall pick last year, the number one overall prospect in baseball, their farm system would not be top 10. The reason that their farm system is, you know, top one or two, depending on who you ask, is because of all the other picks that they made and are currently developing and because of all the moves that they made around the edges to get a group of prospects that look like they might pay off in the future. Farm systems are not rated on one person. So that's not why the Orioles have the best farm system in baseball now. It's because you make international signings. It's because you make smart trades and evaluate talent in other people's teams better than better than they evaluated it themselves. You know, you make savvy moves around the edges, but that is completely independent of putting a product on the field that is this bad, that can lose 19 straight games at the major league level. Because all it takes to put a close to 500 team on the field is payroll. Like the Angels have had, had the worst baseball development, worst baseball ops for the last decade. They've put together basically a 500 team, despite all that, because they actually kind of spend. Say what you want about Artie Moreno and how he treats his minor league, his minor leaguers and everything. All of that stuff is completely true. But the Angels are running a top 10 payroll in baseball, and they're ending up around 500. Now, they're never going to win the World Series because they don't develop internally, and they don't, they don't do all of the things that the Orioles are trying to do, but they're not. 50 games under 500. They're not losing 100 games every year. They're going out and signing the greatest baseball player on the goddamn planet and then extending the other greatest baseball player on the goddamn planet. Like, there's a little bit of goodwill building there. I I mean, I cannot believe that you and I are saying, wow, you got to hand it to Artie Moreno. 
But, but it's objectively way more fun to be an Angels fan than an Orioles fan right now. Objectively. It just is. Because you have Otani. You have Trout when he's not injured. You have Rendon. This is why people go to the ballpark. Not this like very insular version of rooting for the farm system that's going to come four years from now. People don't go to the ballpark. Families don't go to the ballpark because Adley's coming. <laughs> there was a... um. Ken Rosenthal had an article uh, in the Athletic this past week that, uh, I mean, that, I mean, the headline is uh, these Orioles show how badly MLB needs anti-tanking measures, and let's go, Ken. <laughs> it's a little rich coming from Ken Rosenthal, who you know uh, writers of his kind of ilk, him and his peers tend to. I mean, this is speaking in broad strokes here, but often we'll sing the virtues of teams who are able to keep down payroll while actually maximizing their on-field success, right? Teams like the A's, teams like the Rays are held up as these, you know, kind of bastions of what of what baseball teams can actually look like, you know, how what it means to succeed on uh with with lesser means than the Dodgers or the the Yankees or whatever, um, but there's a there's a part at the end of this article where he says uh, with the Orioles' current losing streak, there's no such charm in Charm City, just one numbing defeat after another. In recent weeks, rival executives have taken to describing the team as an embarrassment, an example an example of tanking gone haywire. I don't know how you can look at this as anything other than the logical conclusion of tanking. Yeah. Which is... Play stupid games, win stupid prizes. (laughs) Like, this is the system that was set up, and the Orioles are trying to take advantage of it, just as dozens of other teams have done for the last decade or two. Just because they are not good at it, or are too good completely at it. or too good at it or whatever it is does not make them the the outlier does not make them the black sheep of tanking it it makes them the platonic ideal of tanking in theory right yeah this is what this is what this system has been set up to incentivize right because they will be able to keep payroll down pocket the money on the margins and in a few years, maybe they'll luck into a few playoff appearances. And until then, you just have to suffer and cross your fingers, right? This is, like you mentioned, this is what the Astros did. This is what the Cubs did. The, the difference is, once they got good, they spent $180 million, you know, like the, or, or they spent $200 million. The Astros had a top four payroll in baseball and still run a top five payroll in baseball. So are the Orioles going to do that? If not, then what they're doing is trying to become the race. Which, man, it's a really tough thing to ask your fans to watch your team lose 100 plus games for five or six straight years. And the ultimate payoff in the end is to be the race. The team that trades all of their best players in their fourth year. Like, race fans have deluded themselves into thinking that this is okay. But like for t- to try to reestablish a new raise at this point in baseball, at this point in how we talk about 
service time manipulation and salary suppression. That's an insane thing to ask your fan base. I just have a lot of serious questions about whether the Orioles are going to push all the chips into the middle of the table once these guys come up. Yeah. Well, and you can point to a team like the Marlins who are maybe not at the, you know, have not reached their window yet, right? They are, they've not been a very good team the last few years, despite what a COVID-shortened 2020 season playoff appearance might uh, tell you. But what they've done is, in addition to fostering, to trying to create some sort of fleshed out farm system, they've actually put real major league baseball players on the field, right? They play Jesus Aguilar, Starling Marte, Miguel Rojas, right? Like guys who can, and then supplementing them with young baseball players who may actually yield some really good Marlins teams in a couple of years. The Marlins are so fun, dude. Like I, they're also just, (laughs) they're really good at what, they do in a, at least in certain respects you know what they're really good at doing developing pitchers just yeah. there's just such a qualitative difference between being 20 games under 500 and being 48 games under 500 like that for a fan and the marlins are a tough example because like no one goes to see them but there is a robust Marlins fan base that watches them on TV and thinks that they're fun you know our friend Jeremy Tache is about as positive, happy-go-lucky you can be about a team that's 22 games under 500 and last and hasn't really made the playoffs other than the COVID season. Because mm-hmm. these, these guys on their team are a lot of fun. I will, I'm going to flip all the way around. I'm going to do a 180 really quickly and play devil's advocate against all of everything that I've said. I think it's incredibly rich for these rival executives to cut the Orioles loose now. Were you saying all of this about the Astros at the time when they were won the World Series? Were you saying all this about how the Rays have suppressed their the value of the major leaguers on their roster? Are you saying all of this about the Cubs right now after they cleaned house and basically waved the white flag on being a competitive baseball team? I mean, the Cubs right now are a sham. These last 40 games are a joke. The Cubs fans are so happy about everything all the time. That doesn't even matter. Because Wrigley is a great place to see a game and they finally got their World Series or whatever. That's a unique fan base. But I think it's a little bit hypocritical for people to finally be like, well, the Orioles are tanking on haywire. Because they're, they're really not. Like you said, they're the logical conclusion of what this was going to happen. They're the Michael Elias Fantasy 2.0. He gets a second chance to do this. <laughs> I can't believe that. I can't believe it. Yeah, I mean, in some, this is... Sowing and reaping. That's, that's, that's all it is. I just, yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that everybody needs to be all in all the time. I'm really not. But I am saying that you can spend money at the major league level to put together a decent baseball team that you actually expect people to watch. And it doesn't have to compromise your rebuilding on the back end. Because we've seen other teams do that. Like we've, if you look at the NL Central right now, the Brewers were never this bad. And yet they have all of these interesting players. Like, how did that happen? I don't know. Ask Michael Elias. Right. The Brewers, the Reds, who 
also did not exactly hit rock bottom, although they haven't been great over the last few years. And yet here they are making a push for the playoff spot. I don't know. It's it's so hard because, like you said, I recognize that some teams uh, just are not within their window and you have to make some tough choices about how much uh, how much value on the field do we want to produce now versus how much do we want to bank to cash in on later but i don't know your the fan experience should be worth something i love matt harvey but i'm not entirely sure i don't want to finish the sentence but <laughs> i just oh uh, okay all right well we spent a lot of time bashing the orioles right there but you know what the pirates deserve it just as much and the Diamondbacks are going to be in this situation for the next three years as well. So we'll, we'll keep that same energy. Don't worry. Um, okay. Do you want to do a couple voicemails and a couple listener DMs? I do. Let's get this advice column rolling. Hey, guys. This is Becca again. I just have a quick question about the union. So obviously we know by now that the minor leaguers are not a part of the MLBPA, um, and once they are added to the 40-man roster, they are. What happens then if someone gets sent back down? If the guy man roster has his debut, all that, and then he gets sent back down to AAA for whatever reason, is he then no longer protected by the union, or is it kind of once you're up, you're in, and you're good? Um, or I guess Maybe same thing for if guys get sent down for rehab starts or anything like that. Are they still a part of the union or no? Thanks. So this is a really good question um, that I didn't really know how to answer right away, Alex. But what I and I and I don't know for certain that this is correct. So I will couch all of that and say what I think is to be the case based on reading, having read the CBA and reading the MLBPA website. I think what happens is once you get called up or once you get put on a 40-man roster, you are now a member of the union. If you get sent down again, if you're still on a 40-man roster, then the CBA still applies to you. If you're no longer on a 40-man roster, then the current CBA and the bargaining of the next CBA don't necessarily affect you anymore. So you're still a member of the union. You still have a card. You're still part of this because the union includes... Any reading from the MLBPA website, all players, managers, coaches, and trainers who will assign contract with Major League Baseball are eligible for membership in the association. In collective bargaining, the association represents around 1,200 players or the number of players on each club's 40-man roster in addition to any players on the injured list. So you're kind of in a weird... If you get sent down and you're no longer on a 40-man roster, you're in a weird uh, nebulous area where you still have a contract with a major league baseball club because you're on a minor league team still but the cba no longer applies to you because you're not part of the recognition agreement for who is affected by these current terms so basically if you want to still have the exact protections of what we think to be a union member under the cba you need to maintain your position on a 40-man roster does that make sense, or did I make it more confusing? That makes sense to me. I mean, I would I would encourage Becca to look inward for the answer as well. <laughs> I I think they may find that you already know what the answer is. You know? Okay. That was yes. That was 
great, great explanation, Bobby. I learned, Thank you. I learned a lot right there. Um, this is why, like, if you're a minor leaguer and you get sent down, but you're still on a 40 man roster because you don't, the team doesn't want another team to be able to draft you in the rule five draft or whatever, you can still file a grievance. So for Chris Bryant or whatever, when he got sent back down or held back down, he was still able to file a grievance because he was part of the 40 man roster at the time. And I think more players than you think are part of the 40 man. Like your club only has 26 active guys at once. And so there are 14 other minor leaguers that they are calling up and sending back down that are still protected by the CBA, even though they're in the minor leagues. And then everyone else who's not on the 40 man roster is probably a player whose service clock has not started yet. So therefore they've never become eligible for the union to begin with. Everybody else is like, it's not as many players as you think getting sent down who are no longer on the 40 man roster. Like those players are getting outright cut DFA'd and then they're being included on someone else's 40 man roster. So they're maintaining their protection under the CBA after the fact. I think that's right. If there's a player who's listening to this, who's served on the executive committee who can correct us, please do. <laughs> all the, all the current and former players who have served on the executive committee of the MLBPA drop, drop a line. We've had and, three of and, them on this show. You're, you're right. That's pretty good. All right. Next question. Hey, guys. It's Brian from Philadelphia. Um, I have a question for you about the StatCast wall comparison that they do at the start of games, uh, where they show the stadium that they're playing in versus the opponent's stadium, uh, the, the, the outline of the outfield fence. Um, I don't understand the point of this and I've never understood the point of this. So I'm just curious if either of you or any of your friends in baseball understand what the heck is, is, uh, is, is going on with this, uh, stat cast toy that they have. So, uh, obviously abused. Um, thanks for taking my call. Have a good one. Bye. I love the referring to stat cast as a toy yeah, because I do feel like that's how it's so often employed in the sport is in ways that are not necessarily improving my understanding of the game just adding more information about it that ultimately kind of confuses my consumption so the way that i see it is the wall comparison a trend of statcast is like they try to use statcast they try to use new data to explain an old concept in baseball. Now, for the wall comparison, I suppose that concept would be home field advantage. If you know where the wall is, you know where the deep parts of the ballpark are if you're the home team. And so for the wall comparison, it's like now the opposing team has to readjust their expectations of what it takes to hit a home run in this ballpark. No baseball player is thinking on that level in the moment. No, none, zero. No one is like, well, that center field wall is 430. I better not hit it to center. You don't have that much time to think about these things. So it's really just a, I think this, I think Brian is right. I think it's a a toy, but I don't think that's bad. It doesn't really like bother me. No, it doesn't really bother me either. I, it, it does seem very clear to me that not every broadcast team necessarily has the same information or the same understanding about 
StatCast and its uses, you know, which is why I think you see varying levels of explanation around it. Some some people, it really seems like they're just reading from the yeah. screen, you know, and which is it's it can be useful at at times. But I can appreciate when a broadcasting crew actually understands that the proper way to contextualize I know. some of uh, some of that information, which I I will acknowledge, those examples are kind of few and far between at times. The the on the A's broadcast in the last year or so they have taken to kind of looking at the winds in the ballpark um ahead of the game you know so if the wind is blowing in from left field uh and it's blowing out in in right field and what it amounts to is just kind of a an overhead view of the ballpark <laughs> with a lot of arrows kind of moving around to show the the wind flow oh it's coming into right field and then it's swirling around into center yeah. and that means uh, a typical home run might Doppler. be knocked down might be knocked down 4 feet in left field but might be carried uh 4 feet in right field and i'm like i don't know what to do with this information I mean, I guess if I in hit the a very if I see unlikely a fly event ball, that you hit a fly ball in that exact arrow, you're going right. to know exactly what's going to happen. As long as you remembered where the arrows were, Alex. Right, exactly. Well, and I, it's funny when I see, uh, you know, I might see a player hit a ball that is uh, is going with the wind, right? Is carrying out. The broadcasters might be like, oh, well, there's that, uh, you know, there's that wind effect carrying the ball. Um or knocking the ball down. And then, you know, you see a player hit a ball that goes against the wind, but maybe it get, leaves the park. And the broadcasters are like, well, he really got all of that one. That looks like the wind didn't have much of an impact there. <laughs> like, thanks, guys. It's also like assuming that wind is just two dimensional, where it like only blows in or out. Like, it can't yep. have any effect on the vertical component of the ball's velocity no it's just never was this more apparent than when we were talking about sticky stuff and spin rate and broadcasters would just be like well the i mean the the curveball was 2800 rpm before and now it's 2600 and you're like okay oh it's 2600 now yeah alex it's 2600 and then they just move on they're like all right two one (laughs) it's crazy i think this speaks to the kind of the complicated relationship that base that major league baseball has with networks, right. With wanting to provide broadcasters with a certain amount of autonomy, right. And ability to analyze the game that they are watching, but also wanting to provide them with some level of information that they can use to, in theory, help the viewers better understand the game. But when you don't effectively explain those concepts to the, the people you expect to relay them, you run into some really uh, funny situations. And actually, that'll uh, I'll uh, I'll touch on that in in one of my one of my uh, one of my ups this week. Okay, so you know, stay stay tuned. I will stay tuned. Um, it's all kinks though; they're all working through it. I think in five years it'll feel a lot smoother. And that's just the that's just the way baseball goes. It takes ten years for anything to be implemented and feel any kind of natural, normal sport we have. Um. You know who is, is great at the stat cast element of broadcast is David Cohn on the Yankees mm-hmm. broadcasts. He's phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not that I would ever encourage our listeners to ever support or listen to the Yankees for any reason. 
at all. <laughs> okay, next question. This came in the form of a DM instead of a voicemail, so I'll read it off really quickly. This comes from Calvin. Um, he says, this is going to be a really dumb complaint. Those are the best kind. With baseball and not super serious, but I'm really annoyed with Fanatics and MLB on their product options. I'm not sure if you guys remember when you could buy customized jerseys with any name or number you wanted. So you could get random players on your team that nobody else really likes. Now, those customizable options are for the for t-shirts with a team logo and a random team wordmark. He says, it's so annoying to me, even when MLB and Fanatics has something somewhat decent, they decide to mess it up. So, you used to be able to customize a jersey the way that you can customize a stitched jersey. You can no longer do that, Alex. What say you, jersey expert? Pretty dumb, if you ask me. I think... I, I actually, ironically, this speaks to a another uh, topic that I will expand wow. upon wow. in three up, three down. So our voicemails and and uh, DM senders are just scooping me left and right. But you know, I thought capitalism was supposed to um, allow us choice. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Well, I expected more choice, not less. Think about all the choices that you have for buying Swarovski crystal baseballs with the Orioles logo on them. That's true. Talk about choice, competition and choice. Free market, baby. My cynical read on this is that they took away the option to customize jerseys because too many people were customizing them instead of the jerseys and the jerseys are like five times the price. I mean, yes, you're you're likely right on that point. But I do think it's funny the way that Calvin points out it's we have so few things in baseball that they figured out smoothly. And even then, sometimes they take those things away. <laughs> yeah, the customizable jerseys are corny, and I, I love them. I, I, I don't know that I had one growing up, but I can, I can, res- I can respect it to an extent. But it is very bizarre scrolling through the options of like merchandise that you can, you can buy, and it's like forty different designs that. A major league baseball player has like never worn or anything like that, yeah. you know, that you wouldn't even necessarily think of. You can do this weird customization, uh, this this personalized T-shirt where it kind of looks like a jersey, but your name is running uh, vertically <laughs> sideways down the down the back of the shirt, and there's a tiny number at the top, you know, like. <laughs> It looks like a dare shirt, you know. <laughs> right, it's like it's like Bizarro World jerseys. Jer- <laughs> I don't know why that made me laugh so hard, but there's just like no. I just want to meet the real people that make these options, you know. And I just want to ask them some questions. I don't need them to come on the show and talk about it. I just want to ask the questions. <laughs> All right, well we're running a little long, so let's take a quick break, and when we come back, there. Three up, three down. This is what the real heads come for. The real TP heads. They come for the three ups and the three downs. That one, two, three inning. Uh, where do you want to start this week? Up or down? Let's start with down. Okay. Are you down? I'm down. You good with that? I'm down. I'm up for that. Um, my first down this week is... So the Washington Nationals, many people will have remembered that they traded Trey Turner and Max Scherzer, their two best players, to the Dodgers. Man, I love competition. 
trade their two best players to the best team. Anyway, that's not what I want to talk about this week. I want to talk about one of the players that they got back in return, Kyber Ruiz, who was the Dodgers' top-catching prospect, who the Dodgers straight up didn't need because Will Smith is the best catcher in baseball. Um, so they traded Kyber Ruiz. It was a win-win. The Nationals needed a catcher in their system. Whatever. The Nationals are now calling up Kyber Ruiz. And I saw this going around uh, in a tweet from DJ Short, who is a baseball writer over at NBC Sports Edge. Um, he highlighted the fan response to the Nationals calling up Kyber Ruiz, who is the Nationals' number one prospect, might I add, who is going to make Nationals games more fun to watch because it's an intriguing element, something different than the bullshit team that they're putting on the field right now post-trade deadline. Three different people responding, this makes no sense. Why are we starting his service clock? Send him back down to keep more service time. Keep him in the minors for more service time. What the fuck? And, you know, DJ points out fan logic is broken. And DJ is right. Fan logic is extremely broken. Who cares if you have this extra year of service time? Six years from now, you're not going to remember this is the reason that Kyber Ruiz is coming for free agency. If he is the best player on the team, six years from now, you better be saying, pony up, Mike Rizzo. Come correct with a $300 million offer. and has nothing to do with 2021 calling him up in August. Fan brains are broken. And, and this is as a result of... I mean, you can tie this directly back to our conversation about the Orioles and tanking, right? When if the narratives coming out of teams are that of service time manipulation, are, are that of, let's save a few million dollars, that's what the fans are going to pick up and run with. And, you know, I think that fans are slowly kind of starting to actually get smarter about this over the last uh, few years, but we're still in the bad place right now. You know, the, I think that the, you think that because people on Twitter are starting to get smarter about it, but I think that there are still 90% of the fans are like, why are you calling this person up? You, you no, should exactly, have the exact, re- re- the exact opposite reaction to calling Kyber Ruiz up. You should be saying, this indicates to me that the Nationals want to be good sooner. They're not thinking about the sixth year. They're thinking about years one through five right now which means that they want to get better faster than teams like the Orioles, who would never dream of calling up their top, top prospects right now. Yeah, man. This is the world we live in. <laughs> Let's just go to your first down. Okay, my first down uh, connects quite nicely to the, the question we received about customized jerseys. News broke a couple weeks ago that Tops is going to lose its decades-long grip on the sports trading card market. This comes following deals with the MLB, the NBA, and the NFL. Fanatics will now have the exclusive rights for trading cards of the sport, right? This is, Tops has long been the kind of, you know, iconic manufacturer of trading cards. Far from the only one out there, you could argue they were not even the the best one out there, you know, where my Donner's head's at. I have no where my about any of this. <laughs> okay. But this speaks to the increased consolidation of this kind of thing of like sports merchandise, where even just a few years ago, there was more than one outlet from which you could buy 
licensed MLB jerseys or trading cards or whatever. And Fanatics is really swooping in and grabbing all of this IP, which kind of sucks for fans, I think. I have less of a long-term opinion on Tops as the, the, the primary purveyor of baseball cards. Although I loved collecting baseball cards when I when I was growing up, and I still have quite a few of them, but I think this is something that will, in the long term, be harmful to the existence of sports memorabilia. I don't know that Fanatics necessarily has the the chops in terms of quality to create a lot of these long lasting iconic items. Maybe they will. Maybe in 30 years, a Fanatics baseball card is going to be the holy grail. Seems like but they I have rigged my, it to be that case. Uh, you know, they, <laughs> they kind of have. But, you know, like, I before you could go to, like, a, a let's say, Dick's Sporting Goods website, you know? Uh, you could go to the Dick's Sporting Goods website and actually get a, a different selection than what you got on MLB shop, right? And now you go to seven different websites and they all just have the Fanatics lineup. Yeah. I'm like, wow. When hmm. did Fanatics I don't even remember when this thing happened. Yeah, it's it was all kind of like no one was paying attention. I'm sure people were paying attention, but I was not paying attention. So therefore no one was paying attention. Um I agree with you. Once again, I love I love my uh, lack of choice under capitalism. No, you're just getting the best choice, Alex. You don't get to decide if it's the best choice, but it is the best choice. Hmm. Kind of sounds like uh, kind of sounds like communism to me. What are we in? What are we in Cuba? What are we in Soviet we, Russia? The USSR. This is. I get one choice. This is fascist communism. Hmm. Anyway, I have, some, I have a strongly worded letter to write to, to Robert Manfred. Speaking of fascist communism and the destruction, speaking, yeah, speaking the dis- of it, <laughs> the destruction of the self and the self-image and freedom of expression, Alex, I'd like to talk to you about my second down this week, which is the uh, Little League Classic and uh, Jack Mayfield's wonderful Crayola crayon bat, foul pole yellow, beautiful design. And yet, that bat is outlawed in any other game other than the Little League Classic. <laughs> so, you're telling me that for one game a year, it's not distracting to have a yellow bat, and these guys can customize their cleats and jerseys and, not jerseys, their cleats and bats and accessories as much as they want, but then for the other 161 games a year, it just has to be black or brown bat? That's so fucking boring. And then to see it one time a year, it looks really cool. And everybody was like universally in favor of it. And then the next day he can't use that bat. For what? For what? Because it's a distraction to the pitcher? Well, then why wasn't it a distraction during the Little League Classic? Why is he allowed to use it that day and nowhere nowhere else? Yeah, there's a lot of picking and choosing of the rules, right? They will do the pink bats on Mother's Day. But, but you're not allowed Mother's to support Day. breast cancer any other day. <laughs> <laughs> breast cancer only exists on Mother's Day, according to Rob. Also, breast cancer only happens to mothers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mother's Day, famously about breast cancer. 
what? There's just no, never is it more apparent than than on days like that, like Mother's Day, breast cancer awareness and whatnot, than all of the people making these decisions are men. Like, it's just, yeah. and have been for decades. Like, it's just, anyway, we're already, how are we talking about breast cancer and Mother's Day? Just let freaking people use crayon bats whatever day they want. Hell yeah. To hell with distractions. I, What's maybe distracting? throw the ball harder. What's dis- you you <laughs> let anybody, you let Marlins man stand up with an orange jersey in a Dodgers Rays World Series right behind home plate yelling at the pitcher the whole time. How's that not distracting? Distractions True. are part of the game. All I hear about so all the glad time. We brought and, this back to Marlins man. All, <laughs> all I, many people have been writing in to say that we don't talk enough about Marlins man. All I hear about all the time is about how these professional athletes, they focus like no one else. It's superhuman the way that they can lock in. And yet a yellow bat is going to throw some dude off his game. Get the fuck out of here. Let people use whatever bat they want. Let people enjoy things. No. That's too much. All right. What's next down for you? Next down for me. And again, I, I apologize that I'm, I'm reaching back a little further than a week for some of these. Because we were not able to get to, to three up, three down last week. But about a week and a half ago. Uh, there was a there was a moment in the Brewers Cardinals game caught on TV that uh, that set set baseball Twitter afire, and it involved a crowd shot of a a man and a woman, a Brewers fan and a Cardinals fan, and the the man seemed to be explaining something in depth to the woman. It was not immediately clear, but the the broadcasters were roasting the guy a little bit on air live on air they were going for this guy's throat right making him out to be a i think they were uh, mentioning something about how you know joking about how he's probably talking about his glory days or whatever right and baseball twitter was having a field day with this as well about you know men explaining things to women etc if he was sitting there explaining his glory days to a woman who didn't want to listen to it, then they should just put him in the booth. <laughs> Zing. <laughs> Got him. I just, I don't know. It feels a little weird to me. Oh. To, I mean, this guy didn't go to a baseball game to be mocked by thousands of people yeah. on live television. Yeah. You don't know. Spoken. She could have asked. She could have asked a question. Was like, "Hey, so what's the difference between a fastball and a curveball?" Not all men. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I don't know. There was a lot of like, I'm not even defending this guy in particular, but I think we're we have started to play real fast and loose with like, let's just like dunk on people at baseball games yeah, who are doing something who we don't necessarily have the context for, but looks funny. And broadcasters have really gotten into that as well. And it just feels kind of unprofessional to me. Like, is that what you sign up for to go to when you go to a baseball game? Do you always have to be wary of like, oh, is the TV camera are, are is the broadcast team roasting me right now? Maybe. I don't know. I hope they didn't just see me pick my nose, you know, like that never even occurred to me. Wow. Now that you say it, it is really upsetting. Yeah, I. You're right. I, there are a, a myriad of things that happen at baseball games with cameras that I'm like, okay. And on the broadcast, it's a completely different thing because millions and millions of people are watching that. But like, 
I'll give the kiss cam, for example. That's a weird thing. If you explain that to someone right now, and everybody loves the kiss cam. Everybody turns and watches it. It's like universal. Everybody is obsessed with the kiss cam. The only thing people love as much as the kiss cam is the game that most teams play where they put the ball under the hat and they spin it around and everybody tries to guess which hat the ball is under. But the kiss cam is like, you don't know the relationship between these two people. You just, you don't know it. And I don't know why you would assume it. You're not getting like the consent of these people beforehand. And there's a whole different conversation that we don't need to get into because we're not the people to have it about how heteronormative the kiss cam is. But, you know, it is weird. We maybe have slipped a little bit too far. We are playing a little fast and loose, like you're saying. All this to say, Brewers fan in the shades and the backwards cap could have been a total asshole. I've... I would say there's a more than 50, 50% chance, you know, because as I mentioned, sunglasses and a, and a backwards hat. But who am I to say? Anyway, okay. that's, my, that's my soapbox. What's next for you? Next for me is uh, if you're a member of Matt's Twitter or if you just happen to see this coming along uh, on your timeline a couple of days ago, there was a tweet going around from the seven line, which is a, I don't know, like a Mets fan community. Is that how you would describe it? They're the people who they create the like fan section that they all wear orange out in the bleachers for the Mets. They do a lot of road trips to other ballparks. They organize them. They are basically like a media venture now too. They have podcasts and videos or whatever. So there was a tweet going around from the seven line. Let me just read that tweet for you. Steve Cohen has owned the team for less than a year. Yes, barring some sort of legendary run, this season is likely done in an undeniable disappointment. We're within five years of a World Series title. Trust it. A man of his stature, taking a pause for effect, a man of his stature won't accept this season lightly. Do you agree with that sentiment? I mean, look, Steve Cohen's a morally upstanding guy. We know this. Yeah. From SEC filings. Right. SEC investigations. Gender discrimination lawsuits. Mm Mm-hmm. The general tweets about morality, exploiting draft picks on Twitter. The general morality of amassing fourteen billion dollars of wealth. All of these things are in his favor. So I have to agree. <laughs> A man of his stature will not take this lightly. It's just—it was like a perfect amalgamation of all the weirdness about worshiping at the altar of Steve Cohen, this like billionaire who parachuted in to save us. Like billionaires don't care about you, dude. They don't care. Mm. They don't care about making a team that makes you happy. They don't. He doesn't. The Rickets don't. The Dodgers owners don't. They care about making a team that makes money. First and foremost. If that is satisfied, then they might care about putting a fun team on the field. But it's clear that Cohen's not different than any other baseball owner right now. Because they gave up a better prospect to the Cubs so that the Cubs would pay the rest of Javi Baez's salary for the year. The guy with all the money can't pay the rest of Javi Baez's salary for the year. Javi Baez, who's still on an arbitration salary. It's not even like he's making $50 million. So, you know. But a man of his stature won't, ex- won't accept this season lightly. Yeah, dude, he's tweeting through it. Yeah. He's tweeting about how bad the team is. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> It's so like the I seven don't think we doubled, were really prepared for this. No, the seven line doubled down underneath. We see this tweet is making the rounds today, and then they tagged him, hoping that they would get a little uh, little support oh, from Uncle Stevie. Wow. Stephen A. Cohen too is the one that made the statement about winning the World Series in three to five years. We're choosing to believe that's going to happen. 
Successful people don't get to where they are by accepting failure. Successful people don't get to where they are by accepting failure. So Steve Cohen got to where he was because he didn't accept failure. And he also rigged financial markets. (laughs) Unfortunately, the MLB is harder to rig. Not impossible, but harder to rig. As we know. Than Wall Street. No man has ever failed upwards. No. That's a rarity. Especially in corporate America. I don't even think he's like. I'm with the seven line on this. He's not even like failing upwards. He's just rigging upwards. Different concepts. Different concepts. Baseball slightly harder to rig. I mean, many. Almost anything is harder to rig than Wall Street. Yeah. Like he picked the easiest thing to do. (laughs) You already have a lot of money. The easiest thing to do is rig Wall Street if you're enough of a crook. All right. Let's let's move on. What's your third down? Uh, my third down is about our one true love on this show, replay review. Oh, I thought you were going to say Tim Tebow. Oh, God. No, rip. Um, I really, I really try not to wade into the, some of this discourse territory because I think it feels really exhausting sometimes. Very cyclical. You know, we, we, we end up yelling about the same things. And I don't know, what are, what, are we, what are we adding to the discourse? But I'm going to yell about the same things right now. Okay, here we go. I have not seen a, a more egregious example of how fatally flawed the replay review system is than in yesterday's A's Yankee game. And there were two consecutive plays that displayed this. And how, at the end of the day, MOB doesn't have a lot of interest in getting the call actually right. Starling Marte is on second base. He breaks for third. Gary Sanchez throws down. Starling Marte's out by like two feet. It's not close. But it's kind of a fast play. And the third base umpire calls Marte safe. (laughs) Yeah. The Yankees have already used their challenge in this game. So despite the fact that it is beyond clear to everyone, including the Oakland A's broadcast, that Starling Marte should have been called out right there. All the Yankees can do is fucking kick rocks. Not a thing they can do about it. The A's broadcast says, wow, the A's caught a huge break right there. Look at you, the unbiased observer of replay review. Starling Marte then gets gets doubled off after after a line drive. Ball don't lie. Ball don't lie. Uh, he is called out on the field. The A's do have a challenge. It goes to replay. <laughs> it is shown very clearly. Rugnet Ordor's foot comes off the bag far before he catches the ball. The A's the A's broadcast is like, oh well, this is this is easy. I don't even know why it's taking this long. Marte is <laughs> Marte's safe. Yeah. What do you think the call is? They called him out. <laughs> it is. I don't know if it was a makeup call. I justice was served. I don't, Alex. I don't know if the the replay booth in New York had had just gone to like a bathroom break and they didn't realize the phone was ringing and they just kind of had to give an answer. I don't know, but this is what happens when. A review system is more interested on creating 
norms and making it so it's a strategic move rather than prioritizing getting the call actually right. Because you could argue that when Marte is thrown out at third base, someone in New York watching this game should be like, hey, guys, I know they don't have a challenge, but he is very clearly out. He should not be standing on third base right now. It's even more of an embarrassment that they would do anything remotely close to a sort of makeup call. And still get it now wrong. Now you have... Well, well, but to to get it wrong... Just so that they get... Just so that, you know, you can rectify the error that was just made. Even though what Marte is safe as a result of Major League Baseball setting the rules so that Aaron Boone can't challenge it. Yeah. He already and used then, his challenge. And then Bob Melvin yeah. loses his challenge thinking that he was justified in using it. But then they do a weird makeup call so that now the A's don't have a challenge either. Like, what justice right. is there? This is This is, you know, kangaroo court style justice. It really is. I I mean, it's frankly, it's an embarrassment to the game. As if the the length of these things were were not bad enough. The fact that routinely calls are not gotten right is I don't know. It's it this is arguably the biggest embarrassment in the sport right now. And I don't <laughs> say that lightly in terms of like on field easily correctable. Yeah. Right. I mean, you know, that that's nothing to say minor league exploitation and like uh, yeah, toxic yeah. culture. You're talking about whatever like on during the course of a major league baseball game when everyone on TV watching the TV can sit there and say, wow, they blew that. They took five minutes to look at that and they still got it wrong. What the hell are you doing, man? I'm so sorry, but like, uh, no, but we have to keep it exactly the same so that we can call people out as their finger pops off for a split second. Right. And the second baseman holds the tag on their leg. I'm sure Abner Doubleday was like, you're not allowed to pop off the base for even a split second. Yeah. He said, three strikes, you're out, and don't pop off the base for a split second. Those were the two rules he was like, we can never change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so stupid. <laughs> Uh, okay. I can't anymore. I can't with the sport. Okay. We, anyway, let's continue talking about should it. Should we go to our up? You're up. Okay. My first up this week is it's a little bit of a down at first. Sean Doolittle was DFA'd from the Cincinnati Reds. Uh, mm-hmm. My up is that he was picked up by the Seattle Mariners and he's looking wonderful in those Mariners uniforms. Shout out, Sean. Uh, now pitching in the midst of an AL wildcard race. Talk about a whirlwind last couple of years for him. We wish him all of the best. And I'm just glad he landed on a competitive team. Even if that competitive team is trying to prevent your team from making the playoffs. Well, it's fine. You know what? It's it's all love. The Frickly, gymnastics I, of me trying to like organize a, like in my head a Mets comeback that doesn't involve getting Sean the earned run or blown save. Right. Many times <laughs> over the years, I have been like, how can they do this so that it doesn't negatively affect mm-hmm. Sean? <laughs> okay, well, if he walks this batter, his pitch count's kind of up. So I know they'll be first and third, but maybe they bring in a new pitcher who can then return. Yeah, I'm, I feel you. But then he's responsible for the guy on first, and then, ah, oh, no, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like, yeah. 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 Anyway, uh, I think it's anti-communist that the Reds, would release Sean Doolin. I know. I'm just going to put that out into the universe. Carl, that Carl Marx is rolling over in his grave. <laughs> okay, what's first up for you? First up for me is uh, 
is Mike Shannon, Cardinals broadcaster, learning about NFTs in real time. I mentioned earlier that I was going to uh, to expand upon broadcasters not being given the information that they need ahead of time to adequately explain a concept. Boy, did they really get it this time. I'll ask Mike. Mike Claiborne, what's an NFT? What's an NFT? Says right there, NFT, Michael. We're going to find out. We have to turn this place upside down. We'll find out what an NFT is. No friggin' touchdowns. No. <laughs> no friggin' tonsils. You have that? I got my tonsils taken out. John, did you get your tonsils taken out oh, when you were a kid? long time ago. Yeah. And they promise you ice cream and cake and all that stuff. And then they, they knew you could. This sounds like a, a bit that you and I would do on our show when discussing, when discussing NFTs. Mm-hmm. No friggin' tonsils, he says, and then goes on to talk about getting his tonsils removed. It took him like five minutes to actually figure out what NFTs are. That's pretty good. That's a quick learning curve. I still don't know I what mean, they are. I will say... To figure out what NFT means. Right. <laughs> like the <laughs> I think we're still a little ways off from actually recognizing what NFTs actually do in yeah. the universe, which I you know, fair. I just I cut, cannot believe we got just just skip ahead of learning actually what people say NFTs are for and just try to understand how they're being used in money laundering schemes. I know. You'll save yeah. yourself so I, much time. Five years from now you'll thank yourself. <laughs> the fact that we made an 82-year-old man try to talk about Ethereum <laughs> live on a Major League Baseball broadcast for the first time ever feels like it should probably be a crime. This is uh, Mike Shannon's last year in the booth, and yeah, he didn't. the Cardinals really shit. did not have to. <laughs> he doesn't give a shit, and you can kind of tell because he's just, he's just riffing yeah, up there. I love it. And I really, I really got to respect it. The Cardinals did not have to do him dirty like this. <laughs> okay. My second up this week is uh, more than baseball shared that the MLB Players Trust, which is the charitable arm of the MLB Players Association, the union. Um, they recently made a $50,000 contribution to more than baseball in order to support their efforts to help minor leaguers get them housing, get them stipends for food, help their families, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, It's another example of something that the MLB clubs should be handling and are not. And yet it does give me a little bit of appreciation and optimism about the solidarity that is crossing lines between the the MLB players and the minor league players. Um, Never in the history of that relationship have we seen it be this direct and this, um, this informed, frankly. Like we've never seen MLB players talk this openly or act this openly about how to help minor leaguers and how dire of a situation that is. So, you know, I am encouraged by it, even though I think that it's it's not enough. Like it's not enough until those minor leaguers have their own union or are included in the MLBPA or whatever it takes. It will not be enough until that day. Um, 
And then a, a subsect of that, while we're talking about union activity, is that Marvin Miller is going to be inducted into the Hall of Fame on September 8th. It's 2021, Alex. What the fuck, man? Why isn't Marvin Miller in the Hall of Fame yet? How did it take this long? I know the answers to these questions, but still. Really? We couldn't even throw a bone until 2021? It's especially funny that he's being inducted into the Hall of Fame three months before a lockout is going to happen. <laughs> what a self-own. Or maybe a troll. I don't even know. I don't even know at this point, but still. I'm glad yeah, for Marvin I, Miller to be inducted into the Hall of Fame. It's about damn time. Still to this day, I'm not entirely sure what the purpose of the Hall of Fame is. And like, I don't think yeah, they're sure. I, I get it. But yeah, right, exactly. Like, is it a museum about the history of baseball? Is it just a place where you put all the player, the, the game's best players? Is it both? It's sort of is like it MVP, not, where neither? it's like most valuable player is a nebulous concept. Hall of Fame, what is fame? Right. As it pertains to a sport. Because mm-hmm. a lot of these guys are not architects of the sport. Yeah. Right. <laughs> these guys are not really famous. I don't know. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's a, it's a mess. It's a mess. But it tells you everything you need to know that Marvin Miller is not being inducted until September 8th, 2021. <laughs> the guy who helped create free agency. Also, is Kurt Flood is Kurt Flood in the Hall of Fame? How was Marvin Miller able to make contributions to create free free agency without without Kurt Flood? Hmm. Should we make a special exception for him? I don't know. Based on what criteria? I don't know. What a yeah, joke! It's a joke. I mean, it's a joke. my man's can be inducted solely on the quote unquote character clause alone. The one thing that you know. Writers love to cite when discussing a, a player who took steroids. Oh well, he he broke the integrity of the game. All right, how about the the man who laid the landscape for modern labor conditions in the sport? There's a um, a group of United States senators who have called on MOB to induct him into the Hall of Fame. So that's where we're at. This happened on June 28th. We need literal sitting U.S. senators to lobby Major League Baseball to induct the guy who broke the reserve clause and created free agency, a workers' rights icon, decades later, while they induct the dude who helped him do it. Not the dude who actually did it, the dude who helped him do it. I mean, I'm not going to throw shade at Marvin Miller, but like he was one half of an equation. Maybe the smaller half, honestly. Like He was not risking yeah, that yeah. much. Right. Next up for you. I just went on a rant about fucking workers' rights and my ups. <laughs> it wouldn't be through up, through down without a, a little rant about workers' rights. Um, my second up is just kind of Shohei Otani. Uh, Everybody I wish take it a was, shot. I wish it was more than that. But I, just a reminder that this man exists and he's doing things we've never seen before. He He recently reached uh, 40 home runs, 20 stolen bases. The first Angels player to ever do that, which I had to like, I did a double take when I saw that. I was like, no, Mike Trout's done that for sure. Yeah. Nope. No, he had like 38 all those years that he stole those bases. Yeah, exactly. And when he started hitting home runs, he stopped stealing bases as much. And that coincides in part with injuries he's had uh, sliding into bases. But nevertheless, Shohei Watani is incredible. 
And I'm going to cite, this is, I'm going to cite another MLB.com article here by who else but Matt Monaghan, <laughs> where he writes about uh, Shohei Otani's hometown and the way in which it celebrates their, their prodigal son. He's from Oshu City, which is a which is a, a small city in northeast Japan. They have Otani Day every month. Wow, that's sweet. Or at least a a small collection of a of, you know a couple hundred members of the the town's quote cheer squad. They wear red and they wear seventeen. Even the mayor, the mayor will not miss it. That's tight. We need more towns celebrating baseball players on a monthly on a monthly basis. My favorite part uh, of the ways that they have uh, they've memorialized Otani in their hometown, which, as I said, they they have they will wear Otani jerseys to the voting booth. There is a Otani piece of art, I suppose you could say, made out of rice patties. But my favorite one is the laser-printed creation of Shohei Otani's hand, which sits in City Hall. You can go to City Hall and shake Shohei Otani's hand. They're doing it right. It is incredible. I'm wondering what uh, what baseball player next deserves a replica of their hand to be placed in their in their hometowns city hall. It's Joey Votto. It's not even close. Yeah, that would be good. I want I want like a um like a really massive dude, you know, like maybe uh maybe like an Andrew Miller type or something like that, who like I know Joey has Gallo. a hand who's like who's like twice as big as mine. Yeah. Yeah. Giancarlo Stanton. I'm just curious. I really want to see It's more like I'm a sure science palm, thing versus palm like, a, my like skull. honoring yeah. them. <laughs> Exactly. Either way, if if you're ever in Oshu City in Japan, you know what to do. Shake the man's hand. Send us a selfie. All the above. All the above. Okay. Final up for you, Bobby. My final up this week is the fact that our hats finally shipped. Damn. That's my up. Did you did you order one? No, I haven't ordered one yet. Uh, I kind of wanted, you know, I wanted to see what the, I mean, I was always going to get one, but I, I was kind of, I didn't know what the process was going to be like. I wanted to maybe get some, get some real world uh, uh, photos, see how people, people were liking them, gauge public opinion. Right. Uh, I'm currently wearing one as we record. So if this was the greatest episode of Tipping Pitches ever, I attribute it to that. If it wasn't the greatest episode ever. It didn't it have anything nothing to do, to do with, with the hat, hat though. No. If you order the hat, you'll record the greatest episode ever of your podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, no billionaires in baseball. Wonderful design. Great color for a hat. I'm glad we settled on the baby blue. Uh, if you want to get your own, you can go to tiny.cc backslash nationalize. We'll also just put the link in the description this week. The link is always, of course, available on our Twitter, tipping underscore pitches. Um, Given that that was also your final up this week, Alex, is there anything else that you want to leave the people with before we end this episode? Not really. I mean, I my my final up was was the hat, and and I got my my own uh, Kelly Green Unionize the Miners shirt over the weekend. 
So I'm feeling, I'm feeling good. I can't wait to rock it uh, to an A's game when I'm when I'm there in September. Can't wait to rock it to a Giants game when I'm there in September as well. We could do it together. I don't. I'm I'm wondering like do I do I wear the A's one or do I wear the Dodgers one? You know, Ooh. or does one of us wear the A's and does one of us wear the Dodgers? I don't want to be the one to wear the Dodgers. Yeah, I don't feel confident Might be about a dangerous. that. Yeah, that's risky. <laughs> <laughs> I'll wear the A's. How about that? All right. All right. Uh, what a what a wonderful time to shout out all the people who shared photos of themselves in our merch this week. Thanks to Mac. Thank you to Crystal. Thank you to David. Thank you to Tian. Thank you to Chantal. And Noah shared a photo of themselves wearing the uh, A's inspired and Dodgers inspired, respectively. And finally, thank you to middle-aged millennial angst. No real name in the bio. <laughs> thank Just you to middle-aged, middle-aged millennial, angst. millennial angst. Selfie in the unionized the miners, red, Phillies inspired. Um, Please share photos of yourselves in our merch. If you so choose, you will get a shout out on the podcast. And I think that's it, Alex. That's everything. Share your photos with us at tipping underscore pitches on Twitter. Shoot us listener questions, tipping pitches pod at gmail.com or call us up 785-422-5881. And you know, if you're feeling generous, you could leave us a Leave us a nice review on iTunes. We always we always love to see those. More importantly, stay subscribed wherever you get podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Everybody. Uh, I'm Alex Rodriguez. Tipping pitches. Tipping pitches. This is the one that I love the most. Tipping pitches. So we'll see you next week. See ya!